Hey everyone, this episode features two separate conversations that I had with two great women in baseball media. The first is Andrea from Scout Girl Report, where we talk about the upcoming season and what it's really like being a Rays fan. After the break, Joan Ryan joins me to talk about her latest book, Intangibles, and how basic human psychology affects how clubhouses operate, even when disruptions, and yes, we name names, arrive. Enjoy. And welcome to the Romantic About Baseball podcast. I am your host, Adam C. McKinnon, and joining me today is Andrea from the Scout Girl Report. And uh, Andrea, I'm just so very appreciative that you took the time to come on and talk to me. Of course. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing I, I kind of wanted to start off, um, I came across your video on uh, Ryan Yarbrough's arbitration case. Thought it was extremely well done. I did what most people do. I was like, oh, cool. Throw, you know, click the like button, go on about my day, follow, you know, that type of thing. I think I messaged you like right after I saw it. I was like, hey, you know, this seems pretty cool. Should come on the show sometime, you know. And then like in a matter of hours, you like reached the stratosphere. Like oh, what, what happened? <laughs> yeah. Um, it it kind of blew up after a couple hours. I think Yancey Eaton uh, yes. noticed it and kind of promoted it on his timeline and told everyone to hit the follow button. And then from there, John boy was quote tweeting it <laughs> and it was just, it just blew up and, and overnight. And I had gained a thousand plus followers. It was absolutely crazy. Yeah. It's, and it's gotten, it's only gotten bigger and, you know, and I'm, and I kind of, and I visited the the blog and, and, you know, I kind of looked over, I mean, it's not like this was like your first endeavor here. I mean, you've been putting out, you know, blog posts on your website since I mean, 2019, um, you've been at this for a little bit. Um, and so I, I guess I always kind of wonder like, what do you think, what do you think hit? What do you think resonated there? Was it just, you know, what do you think made that take off? I think it was the, well, first of all, that I did a video. Uh, that was a kind of new thing that helped engagement a lot. And then also just the topic of arbitration. I feel like that's something that isn't talked about that much about how the teams and the players actually come up with their numbers. And it's not something that's super known. So I feel like that was just an interesting topic. It was relevant at the time. And um, it's something that baseball fans were super curious about, apparently. Right. And and so I, I, I agree with you. It, it really came off as very well, like it, it's very well prepared. It was very clear. It was a really good explanation, but um, you, you actually have some experience with this uh, digging in a little bit. You actually interned with the Rays in, in back in 2017. And I mean, I, I I'd love to hear the background on somebody living in Brooklyn being a, a, a lifelong Rays, a Rays fan, but um, can you tie that in with the experience of working for the Rays? Definitely. Um, I had written them a letter on a whim with some ideas I had for their new ballpark. And the next thing I knew, I was an intern there the next year. Um, so super exciting. Um, I was helping them out in, a, in the strategy and development department. So not baseball ops. I didn't touch arbitration or any of that stuff. Um, 
but it was a lot of helping with broadcasting uh, techniques, like looking at the the current broadcast, what improvements could be made, um, concessions, and various ballpark initiatives, uh, things like that. It was a really great experience, and plus I got to see lots of free baseball, so <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Ran in the mascot race, played in the softball team. It was it was a good time. That's a and it's interesting because. You know, uh, so many people talk about like jobs in baseball, you know what I mean? And they think, oh, well, I'll just put out the most fan graphy and thing I can think of and somebody will notice me. But but you, I think, took a very practical approach and literally approached them with business matters. So I think that's 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 really key. That's really interesting that you took that approach. Um, You know, and and another question that I kind of so are you from the Tampa area? Like what inspired the Rays fandom. Oh, uh, no, I'm born and raised in New York. Um, big Yankee fan family. And mm-hmm. my cousin, Peter, he's three years older and we were very close. Um, he turned to me when we were little and said, it's too boring to root for the Yankees. We're uh, going to root for the last place devil Rays." So from there, it just kind of took off. It, it stuck and we've been Rays fans ever since. So the devil Rays. So you go back to like, you know, Fred McGriff's twilight years and stuff like that. Yeah, maybe not that maybe not that, that far, late. Yeah. Maybe like oh six oh seven. Oh, okay, um, gotcha. Was, <laughs> yeah, just in time for the World Series. That's yeah, all that matters. <laughs> That's true. No, the uh, that uh, I was living in Philadelphia during that World Series, and um, I, I. It's funny. So much of the talk about the Rays, and still to this day, I think we talk a lot about the Rays, but it's always non-Rays fans or national writers who are like, you just even get that impression. It's completely unfair, but you always just get that impression that they're just kind of like squeezing it in. Like the Rays are like their token, you know, oh yeah, we talk about other teams. Look at the Rays, you know? Um, So I kind of wanted to get your perspective because you are the first certified Rays fan that I've had on this show, uh, bordering on 60 episodes now. So I want to know, because I, you know, the Blake Snell trade really brought up a lot of um, opinions, shall we say. And opinions like of people in the, the thing that always got me was, oh, you know, the kid who bought the Snell shirt, like, what do they think? You know, they must be all so cheap. And I'm like, do we, are we asking any real Rays fans how they feel about this? Like, what is it really like being a Rays fan? Um, I mean, I like it, <laughs> obviously. I think that they do things very differently than a lot of other teams, which is what makes them interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, whether, I mean, they, it's kind of like the money ball approach, right? Like with the A's and, and with the Blake Snell trade, that kind of stuff, it, you know, it's going to happen every couple of years. Rule of thumb is don't buy their pitchers jerseys um, <laughs> unless they have a very team friendly deal and you're buying them as soon as they start. Um, but, it, you know, it, it's just, it's exciting to watch them because there's a lot of young players and they're not that known yet. And they just go out there and they're very comfortable. You know, it's a smaller uh, market, so there's not a ton of pressure on them and they really shine a lot of the time. And there's something very special about that. And then they go on and, and they're successful elsewhere as well. And it's just nice to see. So I really like it. I don't mind the trades because it seems like we always get pretty good return back. Obviously you miss those players. It's, it would be nice to have someone to cling on to, but at the same time, you're getting like fresh talent all the time. It's like watching a new different team every year. Oh, yeah. And that's a really valid point. I almost wonder if like being a Rays fan or something in that ilk, 
kind of like it brings you to the sort of team first, like it almost molds you into a team first mentality. You know what I mean? It's not like you're you're the Yankees or the Red Sox, hang, maybe hanging, offering the legacy, the Avaldi type contracts. You know what I mean? Uh, the legacy contracts, you know, um, as I call them. Mm-hmm. So I think it's interesting to get a perspective of a team that is sort of like forced is a very selective word I'm using here, but like forced into that style of roster construction. Um, and maybe it suits your personality too, with the sort of like, maybe it suits the analytic personality with the, uh, with the way they approach roster construction. I mean, I think it definitely helped shape it because it, it kind of made me keep an eye out for why we're doing things. You know, why did that trade make sense? Why is it fair? Why are we suddenly changing the pitcher six times? You know, it, it really opened my eyes to a lot of more advanced, if you want to call them advanced baseball topics, like matchups or, you know, not, they're not crazy things, but even having a certain pitch or an arm slot or things like that, that maybe a casual fan of another team just brushes over. But that's something that's important to me to, to understand why Kevin Cash is coming out of dugout as many times as he does. Right. It, 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 uh, it, it both suit it's, it's probably both soothing and interesting at the same time. It's like, if you know why he's doing it, well, it probably, it probably makes you feel a little better about it. Um, and going to the world series, you know, it probably makes it all better anyway. (laughs) Um, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Makes, makes it a little easier to digest. Right. Um, so I'm, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions, uh, about the season coming up, you know, um, you, you've done a lot of work on players, you know, the, from a con- contract perspective, from an analytical perspective, I'm curious about your, uh, what's one player that we're going into this season. What's one player we're not talking about enough. Who is, who is not on enough people's radar this year? I mean, I have to go with one of the Rays on, on this one, and it's I have fair. a soft spot for Francisco Mejia. Mm-hmm. I feel like he got a bad rap with the Padres unfairly, um, and I feel like this is his year. He's gonna break. He's gonna break out. Um, offensively, he was one of the best catchers in the minors. He was supposed to be like an incredible offensive catcher in the majors. He never reached that peak. Um, although he did okay in 2019 and his numbers were pretty good for a catcher, just not that, you know, unrealistic expectation that they might've had for him his first year, his first year up. So I think this year when he's not, you know, in a competition for the, the starting role necessarily, it's not as intense. It's a little more laid back. He'll have more clear expectations of his playing time. I feel like that's going to allow him to settle in and, and really shine knowing that he'll be here for the next few years. Gotcha. And, you know, wasn't, and maybe I'm misremembering this, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't the knock against him as he came up, I think he came up through the Indian system, was uh, was his defensive work. Like, uh, the, I think wasn't there, talk, there was talk of him when he was with the mm-hmm. Indians of putting him at first base or putting him at third base, like somewhere to get him some playing time. Um, do, you, do you think that's going to, that's taking a step forward? Um. I don't know. It, it's hard to say because he was out all last year um, pretty much. But I, I feel like that's definitely something that, that he needs to improve. Although although devil's advocate, it, it's very difficult for a catcher to be good at, you know, 
all of these things combined. And I don't think he's necessarily terrible defensively. I think he's just average. Right. Um, So, I mean, his arm is elite, though. So maybe he can get more runners out at second. That'll be fun to see. But I don't think he's that awful in terms of like framing and all that other stuff yet. I think I remember as a Braves fan, I think I remember, didn't he just like hose Colbert? Was it Swanson or Culberson? Or so? He just hosed him. I think it was Swanson, yeah. Yeah, just <laughs> hosed him down. And mm-hmm. I was like, and I remember thinking like, oh, this this dude's got a cannon. Um, and, and of course, you know, I, I didn't see him again. So I didn't know, oh, yeah, is this like a trend? But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I just, I distinctly remember that throw. Like, and I swear, it was Culberson or Swans. I can't tell the difference between the two. Um, and uh, it, <laughs> I remember thinking like, man, that's, that dude's got a cannon. Uh, so, so in the vein, in the vein of that, you know, what, on the other end of the coin, what team are we like, are we way wrong about? Like, you know, we talk about player, but like, what's a team that we are just so far off base on? that you think is going to, you know, the MLB network talking heads are at the end of the season are going to be, are just going to be like, I don't know how we got that one wrong. Uh, I'm going to go with the Red Sox uh, on this one. I feel mm-hmm. like a lot of people are, are just counting them out because uh, they had a rough year last year, but they actually have a, a pretty solid team. Now I'm not saying they're going to win the world series or, or anything like that, mm-hmm. but I, I see a case for them to win 85 to 88 games, maybe, um, I mean, the core of their lineup, it's good offensively. Verdugo, if Martinez can can figure out what's going on with maybe in, in-game video being back, that'll help. Obviously, Devers um, and Bogarts, I think he had a slight issue, but he should be fine for mm-hmm. uh, opening day. And even their starting, pitcher, um, starting pitchers are, are pretty good. I mean, they have a few wild cards they need to stay healthy um obviously (laughs) true (laughs) but if it works out i I think they'll they'll end up doing really well they also added a few like versatility options so they have a lot of different you know alternatives that they can go with lineup now that i think will put them in a really good place Mm -hmm. do you think that um you know, I've heard a lot of people talk about like, you know, the toughest every year we have this silly debate of like what the toughest division in in baseball is and, you know, uh, of course me saying, "Oh, it's the NL East." And then I get people say, "Well, the AL East is going to surprise some people this year." Um, how do you, I mean, do you have do you have a division, I mean, outside of the Central cuz nobody's talking uh, I think everybody agrees the Central is going to be just like a triple A division this year. But is there a division that jumps out in your mind that like, Hey, you know what this is like, you talk about the Red Sox, the Yankees are, you know, obviously the Yankees, uh, the, uh, the Rays are the defending pennant champions. I mean, I, I don't see how you can really, and it just as a rule of thumb, I don't see how you can ever just like count the Rays out. Uh, is there a division that you've, re- that you've got your eye on in particular, like your MLB TV account is going to be kind of, heavy on the on this division yeah i think al and nl east i think those two divisions are super competitive um for, for different reasons although they both have like super offensively built teams and they've got a lot going for them and every year it seems like the wild card comes down to teams in that division so in those two divisions mm-hmm so yeah, I'm gonna have to go with East. I don't know if that's a bias, but it makes sense to me. <laughs> no, it's cool. I accept this bias. I'm just I'm I'm on the other I'm in the other league of bias, but I'm on the same coast. So I think I think we're all right there. 
Um, how do you think your Rays are going to stack up in the East this year? Because I mean, you know, the Red Sox. I I I see. I hadn't thought about the Red Sox the way you, that you presented it, but it, I get it makes sense. Uh, the only team you can really count out of there is the Orioles. Um, how do you see the Rays competing? Because I see a lot of prognosticators are really down on them this year. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the case for every year almost. True. Um, yeah. But, and yet they find a way. I think that they're in a really good position um, to be successful again. Like, I, I don't see a reason why they can't, you know, fight for first or second place in that division. Yankees always get hurt. They're a great team, but they always, always, always face injuries. And that's just something that they can't seem to shake. So mm-hmm. you can't really guarantee them the first spot. Blue Jays, they have an incredible lineup, but their pitching is questionable still. Especially um, in the bullpen, that's gonna, yeah. Yeah, um, so that can go either way, though they're a, a very powerful team. And the Red Sox have, you know, if that works out, they have a solid team too. So that division is just going to be tough in general, but I think the Red Sox, I mean, sorry, the Rays made some moves that are going to put them in a, in a good position and they have depth, which is the most important thing. So of course, we'll see how they use it this year. How do you, are, uh, I'm interested to see, I want to see Wander Franco play some, play some major league ball this year. I, I, Me too. I, I, <laughs> I feel it's always interesting when we talk about teams in, in these ultra competitive divisions, because it almost feels like the Rays uh, routinely by, by sense of nothing other than convenience get squeezed into these positions where they're always, like you said, they're always down on the Rays. I almost feel like if you took the Rays and you put them in like, obviously the central in either league, but you put them in the West, you know what I mean? In the AL West, I feel like you're talking about a, a powerhouse, you know, perennial, you know what I mean? Like you're talking about a team that's getting like routinely, like a much better look. So I, I tend to agree with you. I think that, uh, I think that they're good. It's, it's hard to gauge when your division is that competitive, you know, how, how your team is really going to do. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's so hard to, to tell that. Um, so I don't know, (laughs) (laughs) just along, just along for the ride. See, that's, that's a, that's a true, that's a true fan. Do you find yourself overthinking it sometimes like when you're watching the game or, or is it just, is it, is it just, are you, are you, are you able to pull away from the, from the, the numbers a little bit? Um, in terms of like winning games, uh, no, I, I feel like every single game counts. Like it, it could be the first day, the middle of May. It doesn't matter for, for the AL East, you need to win as many games as possible. There's no, you know, break in the beginning of the season. Right. Um, which makes it more fun to watch. But, yeah. Yeah. It's it, when your team is competitive and, and it's so, and it's funny too, because you, the, the Rays are so uh, competitive, they're competitive franchise. They have been, this is not like news, but yet every year it's, we, we sort of, um, the national baseball media just paints them as these scrappy little, like comeback or comeback kids or these scrappy little, Oh, you know, they're they're Well, how do they do it? They, they just, they, I love this organization for the, not for the, uh, um, uh, I love them for the me- for the cunningness within the methods, right? I don't like the idea of a team like not competing on a payroll sense, but that's another 
a billion dollar franchise. That's another conversation for another time. But I, I am extremely, I, I love every year watching doofuses like Harold Reynolds, you know, in, in, uh, mid September, or early September say, I just, I don't know how they do it every year. You know, does, do you get any, do you get a small sense of pleasure? Like every, like every, like every September, the rays are good. Like we're just watching people like, uh, like Al Leiter, just like look around the studio, just like, well, well how do they do it? Absolutely. And it's not just them. It's my family and friends too. That, that hear it. <laughs> so yes, I absolutely do. Um, and it's just, you know, if they looked into it, they'd know why it ended yeah. up that way. So hopefully, you know, the recent success of the Rays will give them a little more coverage or, or you know, compliments. People in the industry know that they're, you know, a force to be reckoned with. So I feel like it's, it'll just come down to, you know, repeating that same cycle and proving them wrong every year. It's nice to get those videos from the social media team that, you know, kind of show the negative comments and then just the yeah <laughs> the explosion at the end. <laughs> so, so all of that being said, um, I, I have, I have one last raise question for you and, and it's, and it kind of ties into everything I've asked you so far is when you look at the race, and I, and I kind of mentioned it earlier, you're talking about a team that within the confines of their payroll, they do an enormous, like a uh, complimentary is not a strong enough word for how well they run that franchise period. End of discussion. They're the best run franchise in baseball and in some ways in the way they approach roster construction, in my opinion. But the, the reasons why they have to be that good you know what I mean? Like this is, this is not, this is a team and you could say this about every team in baseball. They don't have to do what they're doing to, to save that much, you know, to be that much penny pinchers on this type of stuff. Do you find yourself at odds with this sometimes? Cause I mean, even like I'm a middle, I'm a fan of a middle market, like the Braves and I, and I feel this way about my team. Like do you, you're a billion dollar franchise and you really can't go out and get like, a front end starter, you know what I mean? Like you really can't afford that, that setup that, you know, decent bullpen arm. Do you ever find yourself both admiring, but do you also feel that other side sometimes where it's like, you don't have to do this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I feel as amazing as it is what they do. Um, like even if we look at Blake Snell, they could have kept him in a non COVID year. I feel like we would have, mm -hmm. um, but it, I don't know. I, they do spend money sometimes. They spent money on Charlie Morton. They got Wilson right. Ramos a few years back. So it happens every so often. They extend some of their players, uh, Lau, Kiermaier, Longoria for a while. Mm -hmm. So, it, you know, it's give and take. I, I do wish that they would spend a little more money sometimes, but it is what it is. Yeah. And, and, and I, I think I should be clear, like this isn't singling the rays out necessarily. It's, it's more just pointing to them as the most extreme case of it. Maybe you could put the athletics in that same conversation, but it, it's, it's more like, you know, a, a testament or a sort of indictment on the financial system. It, it's more like, mm -hmm. do we, do we, the Marlins just passed a billion dollars. Mm. Like uh, is, do we have to do this, you know? And, and it's like, and I, that's where the curiosity comes in. Cause I know I feel it again with a, with a middle to high market payroll. I still feel that way. 
And definitely. Yeah. And that's just the trend in the game. I mean, free agents, they're you have to even reach free agency. That's hard enough to do. Yeah. And then um, from there, it's harder and harder to get signed every year. So that's just, it's a downward trend. It's not a good trend, but um, hopefully, you know, if they'll revamp the system a little bit, we can make it a little more fair for players. Yeah. I, I think, and uh, that's the one common thread I hear from everyone I talk to about this is that it's always trying to make it more fair for the players. You know, I think the whole million the nineties when I was growing up, it was the millionaires versus the billionaires. I kind of feel like maybe that sentiment has kind of melted away a little bit, and now the the billionaires are still trying to force that argument. Mm-hmm. Um, Probably, it, it's tough and it's frustrating because they're the reason that the sport is even here. Mm-hmm. So, yes, you know, we'll see what happens next year when they negotiate the CBA. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Well. Uh, Andrea, uh, what's, uh, where, what's up next for you? I mean, now that you have, uh, now that, now that you have a, an audience, a, a considerable audience, what, what's next? What, what are you doing now? Um, goal right now is just to make more friends, uh, get to know more people in the baseball world and honestly just see where it leads from here. So I'm just going to keep making my videos, um, take any suggestions, look into players that people find interesting and, and see what happens. That's awesome. Well, I, I think your work is, is fantastic. Um, one thing I can say about, you know, that I think is really commendable is that it's not that you're presenting like an argument, you know I mean? You're not trying to make a case necessarily for someone you, you present like, you know, you almost leave the argument to the viewer. And I think that's really something that we, it's nuanced and it's something we lack in the social media in particular world today. So um, I think you're doing a great job. Keep it up. Uh, and uh, we'll be, I appreciate you coming on and talking to me. Yeah, thank you so much. is an author, a journalist, and a media consultant for the San Francisco Giants. I we don't even have enough time to go through all the credentials and everything. <laughs> yeah, so please don't. Yeah. <laughs> Joan, I'm very glad you could join me. Thanks, Adam. It's it's great to be here. Absolutely. So, um I wanted to start off right off the bat with uh you know, tell me about the tell me about Intangibles. Tell me about the latest book uh, unlocking the science and soul of team chemistry like that. For those who may not know, tell, tell me about it. Sure. It's um, 10 years in the making. I'm almost embarrassed to say, you know, I really started thinking about it in 2009 when I went into uh, uh, this big party tent where the 1989 Giants which was back in the day when I was a sports columnist. And, you know, I mm-hmm. loved that team because they were just this, what I call a junk drawer jumble of a team with all these factions and it really shouldn't work. And, and, um, and yet they got to the world series, as we know, it was the earthquake world series and right. they, they got swept by the A's. But, you know, when I was at that reunion and I'm walking around that tent and, and one of the things I loved about them, you know, back in 89, was that, you know, they had all these characters. And as I said, they shouldn't have gotten along, but, and they fought and they did all, all the rest of it, but you could tell they loved each other. I mean, they really like 
you know, using that word very advisedly. They loved each other. And as I'm walking around that tent 20 years later, Mm -hmm. They still loved each other and they talked about it was the best team chemistry, you know, team. So when I was driving home that night, I just thought, you know, I mean, and, and Moneyball was already out and, and baseball, you know, by 2009, you know, was, was shifting that way. There were a lot of Ivy leaguers at the front offices. That's and, right. Um, and I just, and I loved Moneyball. And as I'm driving home, I'm thinking, you know, I'm a big fan of the analytics. I'm really supportive of the analytics and, you know, how could you not be? I mean, you're just stupid if, if you if you don't embrace the analytics in baseball and, and probably most sports. Um, but I thought, you know, there is something there mm -hmm. and I can't put my finger on it. I don't you know, I, I understand when people just dismiss it as, you know, this retroactive uh, explanation for why some underdog team won. Right. Right. You know, or they all have beards or something. And <laughs> but I'm driving. Home, I said, you know, I never really thought about what team chemistry is actually. And so I wasn't intending to necessarily write about it. I just got really curious. So I started reading a bunch of things, you know, a lot of science books um, from evolutionary biologists and neuroscientists. And I, you know, I know I, I ultimately discovered I can't measure it. You right. know, it's kind of a fool's errand right now. I think someday maybe you can, but right now you can't. But the science is the substance there and it's not that it's um it, you know it, it it is intangible but it is not uh false it's not a myth sure like it actually exists and science can prove it right but they just can't measure it and you know just because you can't measure something doesn't mean it isn't real because there's a lot of things we can't measure in the world and we we accept them as real. I think that's it's such nail on the head for what I feel like is kind of it's baseball wrestling with its identity in a lot of ways because you talk about the the introduction of analytics and the sort of decrying of it from one faction and the sort of swearing by it from another faction. And you know, it, it sort of dovetails perfectly into into what I wanted to ask you about it because when I was when I was reading about the book and, and I and listening to some of the other interviews that you've done, one of the things that jumps out at me right away, and uh, you know, I'm of I'm very much of the analytic mindset, but I also I also remember growing up in the in the '90s, in the early '90s, and I remember like I grew up in Philadelphia, so I remember the John Crook and you know uh, yeah. the Darren Dalton and all the you know those types of teams, the Mickey Morandini's and all of that. And I just remember them being like, you know, they seem like they have a lot of fun. You know what I mean? And, you know, much is made about the analytics sort of like t stripping those things away, you know, depending on who you talk to, right? They strip like things, these these things like the soul and the feel of the game. You know, where where do you stand on a lot of that? Like, ha has in your mind the, the use of the use or maybe overuse of information in the game, has it gone maybe a little too far has it has it overcorrected a little bit on in terms of how teams operate and to in terms of how teams kind of get along and, and this chemistry is formed well i think two things one is i don't know that you can have too much analytics because you need to dig through everything right because you don't know yet what you don't know 
So, you know, you're going to a- approach analytics from from every angle and, you know, try to be on the cutting edge that you come up with, you know, something different that reveals something to you about the game. And so analytics and team chemistry do s- certainly have the same goal. Both are, well, analytics also has a goal of, you know, how do you value a player? And that's what Moneyball was all about. Mm -hmm. But more than anything, it's used for strategy. You know, how do we put together the best possible strategy for this matchup with with our particular players against their particular players, right? right? So we know everything about them. And that's what analytics does. It pushes to the surface what you can't see on a day-to-day basis. You need to see trends. You need to see, you know, a a, a huge sample Mm -hmm. to know, okay, that's the best way to do this, that, or the other thing, right? Well, team chemistry and and the the function, the purpose of analytics in baseball is to elevate performance. Yeah. Like why else would you possibly do that, right? Is to elevate performance and win as many games as you can. Now, team chemistry is what I, I came to the conclusion, and I, and I think it's absolutely correct, of course, uh, is that team chemistry's only function is to elevate performance. Right. And how do we do that? You do it by getting the absolute most out of the players you have. Team chemistry can't manufacture talent. So you are not going to be, you know, the, the, uh, LA Dodgers Mm -hmm. when you have, you know, a a terrible roster, right? right? But you're going to be the best terrible roster team there is, right? And you may beat some teams that should be bad that have more talent because they're underutilizing their talent. They're not getting the most out of their talent. And so that's why the smartest teams and, and the Warriors, you know, they're in my backyard, when you look at Steve Kerr and Bob Myers as their general manager and that hugely talented team, what they understood was that you still, you can have the, the greatest talent and the greatest strategy in the world. Right. If you don't have motivated players, if you don't have committed players, um, you are not going to get the most out of them. And I don't know if remember, I can't remember what, what year it was, but one of the dream teams, you know, the U S basketball team, had the, you know, the greatest players. I always put the greatest, but the team lost embarrassingly because they weren't committed to each other. They, um, they just didn't click in, in so many different ways. And so they totally underperformed. Right. And, you know, one other point I want to make, because so many people confuse these two team chemistry is not camaraderie. Mm-hmm. And it's not even cohesion. Like those are a state of being. Team chemistry is active. And if and if performance doesn't go up, if productivity doesn't increase, you don't have team chemistry. And I think when these guys, you know, you say, oh, they're all going out to dinner together. You know, that's not team chemistry. You know, that is not building team chemistry. It's the evidence of it. You're building the team chemistry interaction by interaction, minute by minute, hour by hour in a clubhouse or a locker room or in a dugout and even on the field. And that's what builds this trust, which leads to bonding. You can't bond without trust. 
And then you get to commitment to each other and you can't have that without the bonding and you can't have the bonding without, without the trust. So there's these three stages of, of reaching Mm-hmm. the what what I call a just us team that we understand it's only us only we are going to do this really difficult thing together and we are totally committed to each other in making that happen and that gives you that daily motivation because you can't be committed to a world series that's this nebulous thing you know 162 games in the future You know, it has to be closer at hand and your teammates like soldiers in battle, you know, you're not fighting for God and country. You're fighting for each other. Right. It's you hit on the it's almost like the the chemistry is a necessary byproduct that brings about the successful culture, which brings about winning. I mean, you know, they, I think there was, I'm sure it's been said a hundred times. I can't even pinpoint who has said it, but like you want chemistry win. you know what I mean? Well, it's, it's such a necessary pillar of a successful franchise. And, and I think you're, you're exactly right. People misconstrue, you know, camaraderie and chemistry, you know, you can be in last place and still go out to dinner together. Nobody says you can't. You know what I mean, but right. but you know to to you you can't conflict you can't confuse. Okay, well this team, they don't have the you know the chemistry is there. It's going to do nothing but improve them, right? You know, and I wish I could have come up with a better name than chemistry because I think chemistry is so misconstrued mm-hmm. as this like magical thing, right? And it and it isn't. I mean, you can't like in a clubhouse, you know, you can't really see it in one interaction, just like with analytics, right? You know, it, it, it builds over time. And I do believe in, you know, I wrote about this in the book that there are certain archetype personalities, certain archetype characters Mm -hmm. that happen to emerge. And I I don't think it's happenstance, but they tend to emerge (laughs) on great chemistry teams. And I identify seven of them And I challenge you, you know, to if you really know a team and we can't always know them from the outside in. So it's really the players and the coaches that will identify these archetypes when I share them with the team. Yeah. And I can see it with the Giants because I'm in the clubhouse all the time. Um, You know, and you need the warrior who's like the Barry Bonds. Mm -hmm. You need the enforcer, the guy that doesn't meet doesn't mind being kind of the jerk that says, Hey dudes, you know, we don't do it that way here and you better run out that ground, you know, doesn't care about what people think about him. You need somebody that's holding everybody accountable and you need the jester and the kid and the sage and the buddy. And it, it, and I say need, but I don't mean that. I, I don't know that they need him. All I know is that that's what I observed over and over and over again and ran these by so many different teams. And they're like, oh, yeah, this guy's that, this guy's that, this guy's that. (laughs) And you may be a different guy when you go to a different team. You may be, you know, the buddy on one team and the, you know, the sage on the next team. Who knows? Right. So it's almost as if the team manifests what it needs. And, you know, that's that it's interesting because you t- you talk about, you know, the team, the team manifests what it needs. 
And, and that's, that's really true. Now, I wonder, for example, it's harder. It's probably harder. I think of teams that like the Dodgers, I think of teams like the Braves right now who have that sort of nuclei of young players that when you go back to spring training next year, you know, that guy's going to be there, you know? Um, now I'm curious what you think about, uh, teams like, for example, what about these rebuilding teams? Like you talk about like the Royals, you talk about the Pirates, you talk about the Rockies. Well, Rockies are never really rebuilding. They're just kind of perpetually bad. But like, yeah. you know, you go through these teams. Well, we got the Giants. Giants are rebuilding. Giants are rebuilding. And and you, so how, I wonder what your thoughts are when you've got teams that have, or the, the Rays to some extent. Now the Rays are kind of, the Rays and the A's are kind of maybe more just column A than column B with mm-hmm. high roster churn than like losing perpetually. Um, right. How do you, how do you, what's your thoughts on teams like that? Because that a lot of people would point to them and say, well, there's no way you can build chemistry with, with a team like this, because you know, you never know who's going to be there the next time. And you know, the, the guy who's supposed to take the ball, Blake Snell, you know, wh- what do you think of it? You know, uh, they're going to take the ball out of his hands. In, at the on the biggest stage uh, as a, you know, a, a sort of, a, and I, this are not my words, but like a slave to the analytics. Mm-hmm. So, so what are your thoughts on teams that either construct their roster in a very pragmatic way, like the A's and the Rays versus, versus in also teams that maybe are in that stage of just, look, I, we're going to show up and we look, we can like go to the media and say, yeah, we're, we're going out to win a world series, but we know we're not going to win a world series. Like Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on on those types of arrangements? Yeah. And like I said, I I've seen it with the giants the last few years, you know, because they have gone, um, you know, with Bruce Bochy leaving and, you know, Mm -hmm. the front office changing a little bit, you know, they're, they're definitely, you know, way more into the analytics and the coaching staff now is way more into the analytics. And, Mm-hmm. They get team chemistry. They they understand, and Gabe Kapler, who's the manager of the Giants, understands that it's not either or. It's both. You mm-hmm. have to have both. So now, you know, when this first happened, you know, that first year that the transition happened, there and Gabe Kapler wasn't there yet, but um, there wasn't enough communication to the players about what they were doing. So they're making these decisions based on analytics and, you know, more your old school players are like, what are they doing? They don't <laughs> care about us anymore. They're just making these random things and they didn't understand the strategy, mm-hmm. you know, why they were doing what they were doing. Now there's great communication. Players are on board with it. And, you know, we've got a lot of star players whose contracts expire at the end of this year. So there's this, you know, huge transition that's going to happen next year. Mm -hmm. And so what will that look like? But, you know, to your point about those kinds of teams, it's really how they're managed. Mm -hmm. And inside the clubhouse too, you have to have really strong leaders, no matter what, but especially on a team in transition, that everybody knows their role. Everybody knows that they're valued and they, they need to understand, well, what am I valued for? I may think I'm valued because, you know, I'm a great first baseman and all of a sudden I'm not a first baseman. You know, they got somebody else out there. Well, you're on the roster. So they value you for something. And that player needs to know what it is and be encouraged about that. Like be the best, you know, guy on the bench, you know, be the best, whatever pinch hitter. 
Um, yeah, so management, leadership in everything, we know this. Leadership matters so much. Mm-hmm. It, um, that applies so anywhere. <laughs> that applies anywhere, I would anywhere, think. Anywhere, anywhere. And that's why, like, businesses, I, I've spoken to so many businesses about mm-hmm. this book, even though there's zero business <laughs> in the book, it totally applies to any group of people that are that share a purpose that are are uh, pursuing a shared goal um it's all in, in so many ways it's it's i mean when i'm studying this um you know going to evolutionary biologists and all that tribalism is our most deeply rooted human behavior we're not much different from our caveman ancestors mm-hmm. You know, we are hardwired still. Our brains are hardwired to connect with each other because obviously we needed each other to survive. And now the social wiring on our brain still tells us that we do, that we still need each other um, to, to survive. And there are so many studies. And actually, my parents were, um, you know, this happened to them that my mother died you know, at a, you know, 76 years old, not that old. And she wasn't sick. And, and then nine months later, my father who wasn't sick, he died. Mm-hmm. And that's often the case, right. You know, with a longtime spouse, because they're so intertwined that it's like losing a part of, it is like losing a part of you and you're unmoored mm-hmm. and you stop eating. You know? So it, that's the part that, totally fascinated me about this topic and why I spent 10 years researching it because it's so much about what it means to be human and what it means to be human is the same, whether it's in a clubhouse, an office, your home, anywhere. Right. And so I learned so much about that. And, um, you know, anybody who has any interest in that, like every chapter goes to the science and then takes you into clubhouses and talks about what's actually happening in there. Right. And, and and that that is a uh, when you talk about like the the way that we think, you know what I mean? Like the tri- like that's an excellent uh, I hadn't thought about that, but the tribalism is so ingrained in us. And um as a as a team when you go out there and you share that common purpose, like, you know, that's your livelihood. It's not just a game, you know, it's your livelihood. Right. And I don't go to work in front of, you know, 30,000 people every day, or maybe if you're the A's, maybe 10,000 people, but you know, (laughs) it's, it's, I don't do that. And so that's a, it's an unrelatable experience for me, but you know, with, with any, with, with chemistry or, or whatever you, you, whatever better term you come up with at some point or another, (laughs) um, there, there are disruptions, there's always things that take it off course. If everybody had it easy all the time, it wouldn't be so special, right? So I got to ask you about about a a, a disruption, okay? So uh, I'm talking specifically about uh, Trevor Bauer. This is a, a very polarizing figure in in baseball right now. Uh, he's going. He goes to the Dodgers. This is a team whose core is pretty much intact. You know, over these great teams, you know, Bellinger and uh, Muncie and Kershaw and Bueller, like these are, this is a really awesome team. And it's on the, when you look at the, on paper, you say, well, they just got a lot better. Off paper though, you're talking about a guy who, you know, depending on your portrayal of him, you know what I mean? Off the field, his behavior is is a whole nother can of worms of which I'm, I don't intend to open. 
given yeah. that we have limited time. Yeah. But, you know, it, you also talk about a guy that in uh, Ben Lindbergh's 2018 book, uh, The MVP Machine, he's he's viewed as kind of a conduit. He's viewed as somebody that like, is really anxious to share information with his teammates. And he can be very well liked by by teammates, too. But he either way you look at him, he comes with some sort of uh, he's not a guy that's just going to show up, put his head down and, you know, take the field every five days. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you talk about a team like the Dodgers, that is really just in a lot of ways, the model, a model organization. Mm-hmm. If you're sitting there and you, if you're with the, if you're with the Dodgers and Bauer comes into your locker room, what is forefront of mind for you? Uh, in terms of maximizing team chemistry with some, with a, for lack of a better term, as volatile an element as Trevor Bauer? I would be shocked if he's a problem at all, mm. frankly. Mm-hmm. I would. I mean, I did a whole chapter on, you know, Barry Bonds, because I have this right. thing about super carriers <laughs> of chemistry and super disruptors of chemistry. And for seven years, the you know the the Giants not only had Barry Bonds, they had Jeff Kent. That's true. You know, I mean, two of you know the worst teammates, you know, with reputations as the worst teammates you can have. Mm-hmm. And that team won. They didn't you know ever win a World Series, but they won tons and tons and tons of games. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's for a different reason than than Trevor Bauer, but sure. um, because they both helped the team win mm-hmm. so their teammates they were off on their own separate island of misfit toys and the rest of the team was together in their chemistry and here's what i learned and this is really i, I thought such a kind of a revelation that there's more than one kind of chemistry you know there's the emotional social chemistry which 99.9 percent of human beings really respond to and are invigorated by and then there are those who aren't But what Bonds and Kent had out on the field, they had incredible task chemistry. Right. They were totally committed to each other and to winning when they were on the field. And when I interviewed both of them, each one said, there's nobody else I want on the field than that guy. And I thought, aha. Right. Right. You don't have to be going out to dinner together to have great chemistry. It's just a different kind of chemistry. And there's probably more than just social, emotional chemistry and task chemistry. Those are the only two I've identified. So I think with Trevor Bauer going into the Dodgers, as you said and described, they have such a strong core of players. They win. Everybody would want to be on the Dodgers. Trevor Bauer is not a stupid guy. Mm -hmm. And he, again, tribalism is our most deeply rooted behavior. If you have a choice at all, you want to be part of the tribe and you want to be part of that tribe. Right. Sure. (laughs) He is going to want to help that team win and be a part of that because God knows it is a singular pleasure to be a contributing part of a championship team. Right. Everybody wants that, not just because you get the ring, but because it's, it's just almost a transcendent experience to have that kind of tight core of players that you're a part of and you help them win. Right. So I would be shocked if Trevor Bauer is any problem whatsoever. God, I hope you're right. <laughs> I really do. And you know what? It, you, it, I came into that question genuinely not having my own opinion because I had no idea, but that makes a... It, 
I can see how, you know, it keeps coming back to the same thing. It's, it's no, the misconception of chemistry and camaraderie, right? He doesn't have to be there, but, and I, I had not even drawn that comparison to say like Barry Bonds and Jeff Kent with whom you have a lot of experience. I am, I am fully on board with the idea that if Kent and Bonds can coexist, cause people forget that. And I admittedly forgot that. You know, this, and this isn't like nineties, like chip on his shoulder bonds. This is like really like bitter, angry bonds. Um, I am really, um, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I don't see, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, here's one thing mm -hmm. before we end, I want to make sure I get this in there Yeah, because this was another revelation that, you know, and this came from Jake Peavy. Mm -hmm. So Jake Peavy was with the Giants after, you know, he won the World Series with the with the Red Sox and, and all the rest of it. And if you've ever watched him pitch, which mm -hmm. I'm sure you have, you I know, have. he's the snorter and the stomper. And, you know, he's he's thrumming with with drive and competitiveness. So and he's a huge believer in team chemistry. So I kind of described to him, you know, my theory about team chemistry. It's only function is to elevate performance, blah, blah, blah. So I said, well, Jake, you're already giving 100 percent. So I'm not sure how team chemistry helps your performance because you're, you can't, you know, you literally can't give more than hundred percent. And here's what he told me. And it's the best sentence in the entire book. He says, my teammates summon a fight from me. I can't willingly summon for myself. And it gets back to that tribalism and the profound influence that human beings have on each other. And there's, you know, all kinds of science, the physiological influence we have on each other. And that's what he was getting at mm. when we are part of a really tight, committed, bonded, trusting team. We can summon from each other performances that on our own we're not capable of doing. That's a nail on the head. How do you, how do you, how do you top that? Um, Joan, it, it is an absolutely a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I'm sure you're looking forward to, I looking forward to this year. Uh, yeah. and, um, you know, I'm, I think we're all looking forward to seeing some, uh, a full baseball hey. season. <laughs> so. Oh, totally, totally. I know they just announced today, you know, that, that the giants, yep. like a lot of other teams are going to be able to have fans in the stands. So that's good. Cause San Francisco has been really, really strict about uh, COVID. Right. So I'm really happy to hear that. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day. Go to, go to your dinner reservation. I will. <laughs> I really appreciate you talking to me tonight. Thanks, Adam. Great interview. Really appreciate it. Thank you.